Welcome to episode 25 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter, at AndrewRLP, and joining me is Rugby League expert, League Freak, who you can find on Twitter, at League Freak. How are you going today, mate? Pretty good for an expert. Um, you under the weather, though. Yeah, mate, I've got, got a pretty severe case of the man flu, which, um, I mean, you died from it earlier this year. Yeah, rest uh, in peace. I've, I've probably got about, I don't know, 25 minutes left. Yeah, well, let's make it a good 25 minutes, as I always say. I've got the I've got the defibrillator on standby, so we should be fine. Excellent. That's all you I've, need. I've died from it before. I'll die from it again. Yeah. Just like <laughs> Jeebus. That's right. Um, <laughs> today, we're going to have a look at the evolution of Rugby League via the constant rule changes. This sounds exciting. Mm. Yeah. Um, and these changes have helped shape the game, turn it from... You know, pretty much a carbon copy of Rugby Union into the glorious contest that we have today. Yeah, this is going to be interesting because there's a lot of rule changes that we were talking about before the podcast that even I didn't know about. So um, let's get stuck into it. All right. In 1895, during the inaugural season of Rugby League, the rules were changed to require the halfback to, to stand behind the scrum until the ball was out. Yeah, um, that was... Uh... Interesting. That changed a lot of things, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty scrappy before then. Yeah. Well, I guess guess what that that stopped was basically the ball coming out the scrum and the halfback that received it getting tackled immediately, is my guess. It might have been, yeah. Um, I think in these days they they were slightly tinkering with the rules but not doing anything too extreme because they didn't want it to look too remotely different to Rugby Union, where it come from. Yeah, yeah. They were doing minor tweaks. Yeah, um, they wouldn't have wanted to alienate the fan bases they already had. Yeah. Uh, in 1896, if a team if a team performed a deliberate knock-on, a free kick would now be awarded to the opposition team. I don't know how you find a deliberate knock-on or why yeah. you deliberately knock the ball on in the first place. But there yeah, you go. I, I thought about this one because I was thinking, like, why would you deliberately knock on? And I seriously could not at all think of a reason why you would do that. Um, Unless you were trying – you were just handing over possession, basically, um, and and keeping the opposition down in their their trial line. But that's the only thing I could think of. There was probably something they were doing, but I can't imagine that it was – just if a player knocked the ball on, then the referee determined if it was deliberate or not. But it could have been. I don't know. It seems weird, especially given the game back then was so heavily rewarding to the team that was in possession. The yeah. concept of giving the ball to the other team intentionally just seems It doesn't stupid. make sense, does it? Yeah. Anyway, That's why. Uh, I like, But I couldn't think of a reason why you would deliberately knock it on under any circumstances. Maybe there was another rule that was in place that... Um, if they you knock they that it was a loophole almost maybe that they found at the time, but I don't I really don't know. It makes no sense to me. No, um, I'm with you on that one. Um, in 1897, we saw the first big changes to the way the game was played. Um, the lineout was abolished, mm-hmm. and they also made some changes to the scoring system to try and promote tries being scored. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in 1897, they knew that. Rugby Union was a boring kickathon. Yeah. Um, so they dropped the value of a field goal from four points to two points. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the value of a penalty goal was reduced from three points to two points. And the value of a goal from a mark, which was a catch taken on the full in the field of play, was reduced mm-hmm. from four points to two points. Yeah. Um, all, all good changes. Yeah, I mean, you can tell right away that they're making, they're trying to make the game more open. This is their first, their first genuine attempt to try and speed the game up and make it more exciting. Yeah, and the the interesting one there for me is that they basically were just reducing the points that you could get from kicking the ball through the posts. And the funny thing I always find is that rugby union has seen, like I think rugby league's point scoring system is perfected for rugby, you know, and rugby union are just like, no, no, we won't go four points. We'll go five for a try. And they just try and do everything except copy rugby league score. And it's, it's pretty funny to me. <laughs> yeah, agree on that one. Um, in 1900, defenders were banned from charging at players who were attempting to kick a goal. That's like a penalty goal or a conversion. Mm-hmm. So you used to be able to you know, stand on your line yeah. And once he'd lined up and he was coming in to strike the ball, you were then allowed to rush up and try and charge the ball down. Now, I think that they still might allow that in rugby union, or it was allowed until recently. Um, but it, that's an interesting rule change. There must have been some teams that were really good at it and that were ruining the contest or something, or it was becoming a, a, a situation where the goal kicker was fainting to kick and drawing them offside and there were penalties and all sorts of things. And I, I can see where they were just like, listen, just let him kick the ball and we'll get on with the footy game. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's another another crazy one. Mm. Or as you said, it could have just been they saw maybe they saw a point of difference that could, that could be made and went for it between them and Union. Because yeah. we're starting to see them now trying to differentiate themselves and create a different game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, maybe also removing, like, I would guess that in that situation, you'd want players that are taller. Obviously, you want players that are taller for the lineouts, and it would really have an effect on the teams that you could put together and the, the players that you had to have in your team. And some of these decisions, I guess, changed it so that you just were looking at getting the best footballers in the team, not necessarily the tall, having, having to have tall players and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I think you've probably gone close to the nail on the head there. Mm. Um, nineteen oh one, the knock on was uh, was altered to allow a player to juggle the ball if it had not been previously caught cleanly. So, um, juggling was juggling the ball prior to nineteen oh one was deemed to be a forward pass to yourself, mm-hmm. and so they changed the rule so that if you were juggling the ball. And it was like obviously you're trying to grab possession. You're not trying to yeah you know, throw it over someone's head and catch it again. Mm-hmm. Then that was just seen as you trying to get get possession of the ball. That was then made okay. Yeah, and that's I, get, I would guess that's a bit of a common sense one. That one. Yeah. Um. One of the first rules to come in, which um, which we still see today, was in 1902, mm-hmm. and it's not that important. But I, I thought I'd throw it in there. Um, if the ball was kicking into touch, play would restart with a scrum 10 yards in from the sideline. Okay. There you go. Wow, a scrum from it's... the sideline. So yeah. that normally would have been, well, what would they have had? Because they got rid of the lineouts, and then what would they have had between them then and the scrum? Um, that might uh, have just... it, was, it, went, it went from being a lineout to a scrum. Okay, just straight yeah. away, all right. 
Okay, yeah. well, that makes sense, yeah. Um, in 1903, kicking the ball into touch on the full was no longer allowed for any kick except a penalty because obviously with, you know, in rugby union, you can kick the ball out on the full to get a line out, I think it is. Yeah. So because line outs have been abolished, they they abolished that as well, although it, for some reason they didn't marry the two up at the same time. So yeah, it just meant that you can kick the ball out any other way you wanted to and you still get a scrum. And, yeah, and that's a rule we still basically have today. Um, yep. And I, I find it unbelievable that Rugby Union hasn't adopted that rule already. Crazy. Uh, 1904, a team could no longer have more than three players in the front row of a scrum. Okay, now this is a real scrum-specific scrum rule. Um Man, it must have made the back line pretty, pretty bunched up when they'd have a scrum because they've still got fifteen players on each team. Yeah, so yeah. Well, I think what what some teams were probably starting to do back then was they put because um, you'd had to have six players in the scrum, but there was yeah. there was no there was no rules around the configuration, so you could have four in the front row if you wanted, and two oh, behind, I see. I and see, two yeah. behind them, but you wouldn't need a you wouldn't need a lock at the back. Okay, so they changed it so that it had to be a three, two, one. Um, configuration in the scrums. Yeah. All because right, some that's... teams have just put... Some teams might have gone out there and gone, like, let's just put four of our biggest, heaviest men we possibly can <laughs> into the side and then just absolutely dominate the scrums. Because the first so time that happened. Again. Like, there's four, four of the big dudes line up against, like, three, three dudes. They're like, what the fuck is going on? They can't do this. And the referee's like, you know what? I don't think there's a rule against it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep going until they change it. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1906, the first big rule which differentiated league from union, the play the ball was introduced. And Massive. Massive. the next one also with it was the number of players on each team was reduced from 15 to 13. Wow, they come in at the same time. And yeah. you think about like... How big of a change? And I, look, the breakdown in rugby union was probably a little bit different back then than what we see today in modern day rugby union. But I would guess that it was still a massive change, and it's one that was like adopted, and that was it forever for rugby league. So everyone must have loved that. Um, yeah, and they and must have been comfortable with. I was going to say they must have been comfortable with what they created at that stage because even once the Australian rugby league came in and. It just adopted these English rules. Yeah. And there were no genuine big changes to the game and the rules there for until the early 20s. Yeah, and the, th- the other thing is too, and this is because as rugby league fans, we just think of the play the ball as something normal and natural almost. And it's funny that we have a sport where you get tackled, then you get up and you roll the ball back between your legs, basically. And... There's something about it that it just works and it just seems like a natural movement from being tackled. And, yeah, just they must have tried it and been like, wow, this works so well. Let's just stick with this. Like, we don't need to worry about this at all. Yeah, and it's, you know, it seems odd because the system that Rugby Union's got means that play doesn't stop and nothing resets because, you know, you just recycle the ball through through mall after mall after mall. Yeah. Whereas it seems like having to stop and everyone run run back and get on side. Yeah. Seems like it would be, um, it would slow the game down. But yeah. all it did is it just cleaned the ruck up an awful lot more. 
Yeah, and this is even back then when they allowed striking in the scrum still for a long time yet. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I'd, I'd like to bring up is with the dropping a couple of players from each team, now you've got 13 on 13. No doubt it was about opening the game up and scoring tries, but I would also love to know when they were proposing this rule change, she was the first one that was sort of going, you know what? It's also a lot more money that we're given to the 13 players rather than 15 players. You know, it's more money to spread around between less players. That must have come into some sort of discussion at some point. Uh, and I would guess that it was probably the thing that were like, yeah, let's do it then. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I'd never thought of that before. But yeah, really? that, that's, that's, that's probably a very um, genuine um, issue that could have come up because... Yeah, there's the 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 pool of players that rugby league had available to it compared to rugby union back then probably didn't grow very rapidly. Mm. You can remember the game then was. I mean, it doesn't sound much different to today, really, in Northern England, but it was it was literally just based in Northern England and you know mostly Yorkshire and Lancashire. There wasn't too much outside of those two areas where the game has been played. Um, so finding finding players and constantly finding new players. And we're looking at when that came in too, that's 10 years after the game first started. So they're starting to trying to appeal to the next generation of players because the first lot are probably all starting to retire at that stage. Yeah, and I would guess that it's a bit of a selling point that even if you say, if you've got a potential player that you're looking to recruit, um, and recruitment would obviously be a lot different back then. But if you say to them, look, rugby union team you can't earn any money with and we used to get 5,000 crowds and I'm just tossing up numbers 5,000 crowds and we you know split the money between 15 players now we only split it between 13 you get even more now it just must have been a selling point at some stage for having less players on the field I would also love to know if there was anybody when they made that rule change official if there was anyone in the room that said hang on a second 13 is an unlucky number (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these are the questions that makes me realize we need to get tony collins on the show yeah yeah we need to definitely <laughs> we need to email, this stuff. we should just shut this down right now and just email him and say when can you come on <laughs> <laughs> um all right so we'll fast forward into the 20s after world war one um the goal from marking the ball after a fair catch was abolished so you could no longer just take a catch in open play and, and have a shot at a goal. Um, yeah, that one's interesting to me because, like, in the modern-day context of the game, it would very rarely... If that, that rule was brought in tomorrow, it would very rarely come into effect unless you had a player do a really bad kick. It would force a lot of long-distance kicking rather than short kicking. Because you could chip over the top of the defensive line and if the other player catches it, they can go for goal if they're, say, 40 metres out or something. Um, So that would be a change it would bring in in the modern game. But, yeah, I guess that that would also have more of an effect in England because of their shorter grounds. So you could probably... You could catch the ball in your own half and still go for goal if you had a good goal kicker at some grounds. Yeah, I think it's also a move to try and make scoring tries as the best and most lucrative way to score points by removing another point scoring option from the field of play. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, um, it, it makes the try the priority rather than it's one less way to kick a go- have to have you kicking a goal. Exactly. Um, speaking of, um, in the same year, the field goal, which used to be able to be scored by kicking a ball off the ground over the crossbar, that was also abolished. So you could just kick it clean off the deck, and click. It, and if you kicked it over the over the crossbar, you get two oh. points for a field goal. Oh wow, that's interesting. I get. You know what we're we're forgetting about here is that the balls would have been so different, and I feel like there was a period in the game's history where, and you hear a lot of stories about, oh, this player kicked a goal from like seventy meters out and stuff like that. They must have been really easy to kick with back then. Um, if you could, if they had an issue with players kicking the ball off the ground like that, that must have been really easy to kick those balls. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. They were, I mean, they were leather bound. I don't know if you've ever tried to kick a leather ball when it's wet. It's, yeah, that's it's pretty the, much. And it's pretty much like, like trying like to crap. drop a wombat onto your foot. Yeah, that's. But that's the thing. And but yet, from this era of the game, you hear all of these stories about these incredible goals that were scored from ridiculous metres out, and obviously there's a little bit of embellishment in some of them, but there must have been some... I mean, that rule was in place, and obviously players were still kicking them off the ground. Even with the modern-day rugby league ball during a game, if a player did that now, you'd be like, wow, what are the odds of that ever happening? But it was obviously something that was happening enough back then that they had to get a rule in place. So I find that interesting. Absolutely. Um, 1926, the goal line dropout replaced dropouts from the 25-yard line after the ball was forced dead by a defender. Okay, and I, that's just better, uh, easier to score on the resulting possession. Yes, it's providing a better reward for the attacking team. Yeah. And... It's interesting that we still have the dropout for a miss at a penalty kick, though, on the 20-metre line. Um, that is kind of a relic of that rule, I guess. And one that still works really well, I think. Yes. Um, 1926 also, a new version of the play the ball was created, which consisted of two players from each side. The ball was contested by only the player who'd been tackled as they were playing the ball and the opposition marker who's standing right in front of him. They were allowed to contest, but they also had to be a player behind the tackle player playing the ball and another one behind the marker. Okay, they so had, my... they had to act as halfbacks if because it was made out to be like a mini scrum. So you yeah. needed to have a halfback at every contest. Um that's essentially how that worked. And you yeah, so I suppose it's um it was an attempt to try and equalize possession I guess. Because obviously back then it was all, you know, you could hold the ball for as long as you wanted. There was no limited tackles. Yeah. See, I would also guess that if you think about it, it would be a smart decision to a player gets tackled and you basically spread your line out, your your defensive line, out across the field. But because they allowed striking at the play the ball, if the player that was the defender struck, struck struck at the ball and did manage to get possession, it must have been a bit messy if you didn't have a player behind him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm guessing that that brought that into a certain extent. Um, and just also generally cleaning it up a little bit as well as a, as a result. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. 
and making sure there's markers. I mean, if if you were allowed to keep in mind that the defensive line is still right there where the ball's been played. They're not going back even five metres at this stage. They're right there with the play the ball. I would guess that it just it, it contracted the defensive line a little bit and made them have to really worry about being there. Um, so that's an interesting rule change. Yeah, in the same period, um, I must admit, I only just thought of it and I forgot to put it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they they toyed with the idea of the referee feeding scrums. Yeah. And I think it only lasted... Uh, I don't think it was ever used in premiership games. I think it lasted in an off-season mm-hmm. where they toyed with the idea and eventually it was decided not to go ahead with it. Yeah, poor um, referees, jeez. Yeah, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, one other change in 1926 was that um, clubs were not allowed to use interchange players. So if you've got a player who got injured, mm-hmm. you were down to 12 players. That's a that's crazy. <laughs> and what's crazy is that rule stayed in for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder why they brought that in. I, I wonder if it was because they were having interchange players and players were faking injuries, bringing on fresh players. I Look, bet that's that, what it was. That may well have been the, the major reason for it. Because, mm. um, I mean, especially in Australia in the 20s there, they're starting to get a lot of good talent, both in Queensland and New South Wales. I mean, this is the this is the period when Queensland was starting to not just equal up with New South Wales, but they were actually winning interstate matches against New South Wales regularly. Yeah. And so clubs were constantly trying to bring them down. It meant the game was getting a lot better. Depth in clubs was getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant time for rugby league, really. And yeah. there would have been top quality players outside of the outside of your best thirteen as well. So, you know, clubs may have been sitting there thinking, "We'll just pop a pop this top line player on the bench, mm. and we'll pretend one of our players has got injured after twenty minutes or so, and he can come on after the softening up period and play as free as he likes." Yeah, and so that to do makes that sense. That. It's pretty brutal, though. That's a brutal rule, still. Oh yeah. Um, I found reports on games in the 50s where I think West played against Manly and they got flogged, but it was largely because they had three three players or four players get injured. Wow. And so they actually had two players on the field with broken bones so they could still form a scrum playing in games. Damn. It's just madness. Wow. Um... Yeah, 1931, it became mandatory for each team's forward pack to set down a scrum in a 3-2-1 formation. So it was... it was Clubs were doing it pretty much the whole time, anyway, up to that point. But yeah. occasionally you get the, the odd team that would try and sneak a fourth player into the front row. Mm-hmm. Um, so this I would also guess... Pick. I would also guess that you would probably get teams that would maybe as the scrum is being fed, drop the lock off of the back, um, yeah. stuff like that. And they, they just solidified that rule to a certain extent where, no, you've got to stay in the scrum. Yeah. Um, some teams would even pick two halves and they put one in the scrum. So you effectively have two hookers in the middle. Yep. Yeah. They double your chances of winning the ball back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, I mean, South Sydney used to play with, with two halfbacks for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. In the, especially in the twenties, and they were they dominated that period there. Yeah. Um, 
we scoot ahead quite a bit here to the okay. next major change, which is in 1951, so 20 years. Oh. And we, we see the five-yard ruck rule introduced and applied to both teams, um, which, as you mentioned before, proves there had been a no-yard a no ruck rule, as it was known. So mm. teams had to stand five, you know, five yards back, I guess. Um, that rule lasted one year, and they scrapped it. And then in 1956, so four years later, they reintroduced it, but instead of being five yards, it was three yards. So they they went back a little bit, but not yeah. too far. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, players are different athletically back then to what we see now. They're uh, what we would call part-timers. I mean, they were professionals for that era, but they were part-timers in, in real you know, what we consider part-timers anyway. So the speed of players, the athleticism of, of players, most of them would be very different. It's interesting that they realised they had to get the defensive line back and they started off with having the defensive line back but also having the, the attack back. And my, I wonder if that first rule they brought in, if it was almost a way to make the attacking team they knew that the attacking team had to have more depth, so they tried to mandate it through the rules. Um, and then they've obviously scrapped it because it hasn't worked out the way they wanted it to. And then they've just added that three-yard rule to the defensive side a few years later um, because they, they must have realised they needed something in place to bring the defence back from where it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Another good, interesting thing about this year... It was the year that uh, Stanley Jean first started playing football, so it's a big year for No, <laughs> no way. He was playing yeah. before then, surely. Well, I always used to say he used to play five out, eighth outside of Moses. So there you go. <laughs> Quite possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got to remember where I was up to. It was 51, wasn't it? So, uh, uh, oh, here we are, yeah. 1961. Mm-hmm. The game had changed again, and so the rules changed with it. Um, and in an effort to discourage useless runs by dummy halves, a rule was made whereby if the dummy half was tackled after running the ball, there would be a scrum. Mm-hmm. And this rule only lasted two years, and they, then they scrapped it in 63. So don't know what's going on there. I dare say because teams are now standing further apart, mm-hmm. um, Teams would just run the and you know we're still in the um, unlimited tackles era. Yeah, teams would just have hookers just getting the ball and just or dummy halves and just constantly doing you know scoots from dummy half to just keep charging the ball upfield because teams are constantly going back three yards every time. They're just yeah. constantly making three yards off every tackle until they yeah, get to the other end. With unlimited interchange. Uh, not unlimited interchange, sorry, unlimited tackles. We haven't got a, t- a limited tackle rule yet. They're going back three yards. It it would change the makeup of the side you selected because you would want players that would grade out a dummy half. And, you, yeah, you just crush them with dummy half running over and over again, and the back line wouldn't see the ball until you'd gone through a number of, of tackle sets. Um it, which is interesting that they brought in that rule, but then they scrapped it again. It must have been maybe too restrictive or shut down the ruck a little bit too much so that there was too much uh, pressure on the dummy half uh, just playing the ball. You know, they must have been just charging that dummy half. 
if he didn't get a clean play of the ball and got a good pass, quick pass off, they were, you were stuffed. It was a scrum because he was getting yeah. tackled. So I see both sides of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, 1963, 37 years later, teams were allowed to make a, repla- uh, make a maximum of two replacements for injured players only during the first half of a game. Nice. You couldn't do. You couldn't replace any players after half time. Oh so if, wow! Yeah. So if you had injured players in the first yeah. half and up till half time, you could replace them, but only two of them. Shows how much they valued attrition. Yeah, but in the second half, no, 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 no. You can you can get through that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow, in, that's a really that's really interesting because it really does. It shows how much they valued the attrition aspect of the game and that, like, you run out there, that's what you've got, and if someone's injured, too bad, you play on, you know? Yeah. And it shows just how tough the game was back then mm. and how unsafe it was back then, which doesn't really get mentioned too much either. Yeah, and the other thing, you also have to think about the if you've got a, a player in the opposition that you can bash out of the game pretty much, they they can't get replaced. Like, That's right. You know, if somebody's injured, you go at them nonstop and just make them completely ineffective. I mean, they might have to stand on the wing and even then you'd still go at them. So, yeah, interesting rule change and, and but still has that brutal aspect of it that second half, man, you've got who you've got. Yes. Uh yeah, the number of games you come across in that period there, up until that rule came in, where you know players were staying on the field with busted shoulders, yeah, you know, like dislocations and stuff like that, or broken arms or whatever. Mm. I mean, there's always that classic story of um, Clive Churchill kicking a fi- uh, kicking a goal from out near touch with his arm, <laughs> his his broken arm in a sling made out of the cover of an exercise book and a ruler and some tape. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> tough, man, tough. Tough as fuck. Like, that's incredible. And, and it's interesting because I watch the game these days, right, and I think, like, you see tackles and you think if, if a normal person was hit like that just on the street and they knew it was coming, you'd be sore for, like, a month. And probably yeah. six weeks later you'd still be like, man, it still hurts when, you know, I sit this way or whatever. And but then you look back at something like that where his arm is being held together with a like a book binder, you know, and he's still kicking a goal. Unbelievable! He, he kicked, that was it was a remarkable season that one, which we'll probably we might even do a show on once one mm-hmm. day. It's um, they come from so far back, and they went on this amazing win streak, mm-hmm. and um, you know Churchill led them the whole way. But then they won this second last game of the season to just sneak into the top four with only one game left to play. So they were playing grand finals for about 10, 10 or 11 weeks or so out of an 18-week competition um, and, and made it all the way through the premiership decider and won the title that year. And Clive Churchill, I mean, I consider him the greatest player of all time. Just be going by what his peers at the time used to say about him, they revered him. Everyone revered him, even as he was playing. And... Yep. There's very few plays in the history of the sport that you could think, wow, who could lead a team through that? And Clive Churchill was such a great that it's like, oh, that makes sense that he could do that. You know, how unbelievable yeah. the things he did. 
it was next level. That's the thing. Everyone remembers the the amazing razzle dazzle he could do. The you know the phenomenal plays he could set up. You know his his sharpness, but his his toughness was one thing that was always often underrated. But um, yeah. things like that just show you just how tough that he, he really was. Especially he's only a small fella too. Yeah, it was very small. And the other thing is too, like he as just as a leader, and he must have been not just on the football field, but he must have been a real leader of men because like captains of other teams at the time, they really do. They talk about him with a reverence that he he just must have been like a force of nature to be around. It must have been incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, moving on. Um, 1964, um, kickoff from halfway was used for um, any any time after a try had been scored. So in the past, that rule was in place if the try had been converted. Mm -hmm. You kicked it from halfway. If it was unconverted try, you did a, I think it was a a restart from the the defending team's 25-meter line. Okay, and the the defending team would get the ball? Uh, No, in that case, it was the the defending team was kicking off. So... Oh, um, I see what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so... They so change it so like that after all... with the the penalty goals, if you miss a penalty goal, and you basically kick the if the yeah. opposition, yeah. So it was basically that rule. Yep. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And yeah. the other thing to remember too is very in, early in the game's history, like we think of today, is the try is the reward. Back then, uh, very very early on in the game's history. Scoring a try was what you did to get the opportunity for the reward, which was kicking the goals. And I guess that there was still a little bit of that in the game's DNA, even at this point, where obviously tries had taken over by this point, but it was still there in the base DNA of the game. Yeah, I think it was because the try was only worth one point more than the goal or the field goal. And Mm. the field goal you could kick during play... Um, which clubs started to really, around this period especially, they really started to, you know, essentially, they spammed it. You know, think of Eric Sims kicking 80-odd field goals in a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, just insane. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot of changes that are coming through over the next um, over the next 10 years, which changes that as well to try and, again, get the emphasis on teams scoring tries, not on kicking goals. Yeah, and, like, I... I wonder if when these teams were kicking field goals all the time, if it was like when you used to play like Street Fighter and somebody would be, you know, using Dal Sim and they'd be kicking you from a distance and you'd be like, stop dogging it. Stop dogging it. I wonder if they were doing that in the field. You're dogging it, Sims. What are you doing? <laughs> run it. Run it. Yeah. Run it. Ah, you, you dog. Another yeah, I field bet, goal. I bet it happened. I bet it happened. <laughs> um in 1966, the five-yard ruck rule is reapplied after, you know, it was that three yards. Um, and, more importantly, in the UK in December 66, the four-tackle rule was introduced, um, which ended the unlimited tackle rule. The reason why it came in more, you know, most importantly, was because of one game between Hull KR and Huddersfield, where Huddersfield kicked off, and for the rest of the 40 minutes of the first half, they touched the ball twice. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, 
I'm not surprised that Hulk KO would do something like that, the bastards. But secondly, um, it's it's interesting that it, ha- it wasn't a tactic that was used more up until the point in the game. My guess is that enough possession was turned over from just drop balls and, and poor handling and just general, you know, you'd probably get a recycling of possession from goal kicks and things like that. And maybe during this era when they were trying to devalue kicking at goals and and teams started to see that, you know, it's time to start grinding the opposition down. And obviously Hulk KR saw that to an extreme level. Um, And it's it's come in in England and eventually it'll get to Australia. But, yeah, and one of the biggest rule changes, probably one of the probably top five rule changes the game's ever made. Yeah, oh, there was actually Australians involved in the um, discussion about bringing in that rule change in England, mm-hmm. and it was only, I think it was only about two months later that Australia agreed to adopt it for the for the sixty seven season. So, um, it was pretty much implemented straight away everywhere. Yeah, um, it was pretty hard to argue against it. Um, yeah, and it must so, have made the game look once you because there would have been a lot of opponents to it because they still valued the attrition aspect of the game. But it must have been something that once you saw it play and you were like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good what I'm watching. This recycling of possession is fantastic. And it would have been because it was now a a chance for teams you would get to the end of your set and you had to do something with the ball. This would have also been an era where new kicking tactics would have come into play. So that's something else to think about with that rule change as well. Plus it meant that you got much closer to 50-50% um, possession for both sides. Yeah. And this these changes help make the game um, really work on TV. Mm-hmm. And it was around this time that both the game in Australia and England started to realise the value of the game on TV. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that happened in 67, a very minor one, is um, when a penalty kick went into touch... Um, there used to be a scrub. They replaced that with a tap restart. Okay, so yeah. We're starting to see now that they've now that they've found a way to make you know work on making tries more important. They're now starting to think of ways to minimise the number of scrums in games because back in these days, scrums were they were everywhere. Like it was not surprising to get thirty, thirty-five, sometimes even forty odd scrums in a game. There was there was that many of them in it, so they're trying to find ways to help open the game up and speed it up a bit because it's on TV now. We need to make it more exciting. Yeah. And the other thing is too, you've got this game which now you can see there are rules to have it open and faster and go for tries, and then you've also got other rules which are like, you know. Let's have you know. Let's have fifteen scrums. Let's stop everything. Let's stand around and wait for it to get repacked and collapsed and repacking. And you've got these. It's almost like this is the moment in the game's history where it's trying to let go of what the last remnants of almost rugby union used to be, where it was like this slow down. We all stop and stuff and wide open passing, which is what rugby league's supposed to be about: running and and scoring. Um, so it's it's an interesting moment in the game's history right here. Yes, and we start to see the game evolve a bit more quickly from this point on too. Mm. Um, three years later, 1970, 
um, they, they allowed two players to sit on the bench and they could replace injured players at any time during the match, not just at, not just in the first half. Mm-hmm. So long as they had played at least half a game of lower-grade football. Oh, yes. I, I love this rule too because it meant that you weren't bringing on fresh play. That's they exactly had, right. Yeah, So and, and I love that rule. I don't know why I love it, but there's something about... Um, there's something about it I just love. I can't even explain what it is. You know what I liken it to? What? When a cricket ball gets damaged in the middle of a game and they come out with yes. a box of balls that have been out there for about the same number of overs. Yeah, you're right. That's true. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. These, these guys are similarly belted around as much as the guys who have just come off, so they're fine. <laughs> and there must have been... And you know what? It's a really, really great compromise because... And you could see it coming in even today where... The NRL says, look, if, say the NRL brought in a rule today and they said if a player gets hit in a head-high tackle and they have to leave the field, then the opposition player that hit them in a head-high tackle has to also leave the field for the rest of the game. But then what do you do? Because both sides are down a player. I could see where they say, well, you both name a player that played reserve grade that day. So that you're not, you can't bring a fresh player on. You know what I mean? You, you don't have that incentive of being like, oh yeah, you know, I got hit in a tackle. We'll have to bring on a fresh player off the bench. It's got to be somebody that played reserve grade. It also means that you're not naming a top star as well. You know what I mean? That's right. So you're, you're naming a, a player that is literally from your second team, and he's coming in, and it really is like a. It's an emergency move, and you won't use it in emergency because you're bringing in a player that wasn't named in your top side anyway. But, yeah, I love this rule, and I don't know why. Um, the other great rule that came in in 1970 mm-hmm. was the six-tackle rule. Now, mm-hmm. I'll ask you, see if you know. I've written an article about this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know when the six-tackle rule was first used in Australia? Okay, so what year is this that it's just come in six tackles? I guess it's coming in England, yeah? Um, no, it got trialled in Australia first, so 1970. Okay. 1970 it's come in, but it's just been trialled and it comes in. So it's, it's, made, it's made official in Premiership football in 1971. Okay. But it was first trialled and used in 1970. Okay. And it was used in a, a small post-season competition that lasted two years, called the Endeavour Cup. All right. And it was sponsored by um, Toyota Thies, and it was held at the Cronulla Sharks' home ground of Endeavour Field at the time. Yep. Um, wow. It was essentially propped up and run by the Sharks Club, so it was essentially their competition. We're thinking the Broncos Super League of 97 here. The Sharks yeah. Were, the Sharks would do it in 1970. Um, it, which and is funny, because they've never had money. <laughs> 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 well, the idea of it was... Um, the teams that weren't in the finals would play in this competition so that the players could remain in the eyes of selectors for upcoming tours. Because what had happened in the past is selectors would generally just pick a whole bunch of players from the teams that were in the finals. And yeah. if they needed extra places, they'd go to the next lot after that. So it was kind of designing this concept to try and keep everyone in the selectors' eyes. And it shows the value they had then in international footy. Yeah. Um Absolutely. So what they decided was, we'll put it in here, but we'll also take it as an opportunity to trial a few new rules. And this is the first time they decided to trial the six-tackle rule. 
and every coach of all the teams there thought it was an absolutely brilliant idea because um, the first thing that was said by one of the coaches was that the four-tackle rule essentially saw too much panic football mm. because you'd only have two tackles where you got to sort of move forward and then you're already thinking about what we're going to do at the end of the set for the last two. Yeah. Whereas the six gave them four tackles to get some good field position and then try and do something. And it meant that they were getting further upfield and being better attacking opportunities and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing they found too was a reduction in the number of scrums per game. Because there's oh, less, ten- with less yeah. panicked football, they're playing with more um, more control with the ball. They're not trying to throw the ball around as much. Yeah. And because there's less scrums, the game's more open. It's a bit faster. It's a bit more you know exciting to watch. And I guess overall too, you've got less sets like if you had the exact same number of of tackles in the game um you're going to have less overall sets so you're going to have less kicks out to start the scrum you're going to have like that sort of thing as well so that's that's another thing um i you know and it it hasn't come in yet the the points changes but i always i also think it's a nice the way that it lines up that if you convert a try at six points and you've also got six tackles I, I've always liked that. And I know it wasn't planned like that, but I, I just think it's nice for rugby league to have that sort of thing. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's amazing how that whole... Um, that tiny little competition, it only had about, I think, eight games were played in it all up over two years, maybe nine games. Mm. And Cronulla didn't win the first one. They won it the second time. It was actually their first ever title. Everyone thinks the Emco Cup was their first title. It was actually the Endeavour Cup. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was pretty um, pretty fascinating that it was that little tournament where they trialled that for the first time. It's interesting that they had that tournament for the teams that didn't make the finals because I don't understand why we don't have a, some sort of tournament, like even if it's a knockout tournament, between NRL teams that don't make the finals and Super League teams that don't make the finals. And I, I understand that the leagues don't want to take away from their final series, but you could play like a, a weekend in, like almost a magic weekend, like in Las Vegas or something with these teams. I think that would be a really cool idea. Or like just make an event out of these teams that, you know, go to Hong Kong, uh, go to some, go played in France, you know, do something with these teams that didn't make it, even if it's a straight knockout competition. Um, I think that would be cool, even if it was just a nines competition with these teams. I think it, something would like that would be, fantastic to add to the calendar and I don't think it would take away from the final series of both competitions at all. No, I'd be I'd be open to that. Would would mm-hmm. we still call it the Endeavour Cup? Yeah, bugger <laughs> it. Endeavour, I mean it like Endeavour is a very important word for both England and Australia. Used to be the uh for my primary school it was like uh the motto was Endeavour. Oh there so, you go. Yeah, we've come full circle. Okay. If it's relevant to you, mate, then that makes it more important. Basically, (laughs) yeah. I mean, isn't this whole sport set up for me? I thought that's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, 1971, we saw the six tackle rule introduced in Australia. um, And the value of a field goal was was reduced from two points to one point after we had a ton of players kicking 300 field goals every year. Yeah, brilliant rule change. We're probably overdue at that point. Absolutely. Um, Nineteen eighty-one. Ten years later, the mm. introduction of the sin bin, and ah. back then it was a, it was for five minutes. 
Mm. Now, is this off the back of the big push to get rid of um, foul play in the game? Exactly. So yeah. they were doing this big cleanup of the game. The, yeah. the late 70s, the game became, in Australia especially, very violent and mm. very, very messy. I mean, in that period there, we had um, you know, the horrible issue that happened with John Farrago and the, a scrum collapsed on him and he became um, paralysed from the neck down. Um, and, I mean, we haven't seen anything like that since, you know, Alex McKinnon a few years ago. Yeah. So, um, and then we also had, there was always lots of fighting going on in games. I mean, if anyone's seen the, the was it 1973 grand final? Mm. between Manly and Cronulla. That well, was just a brawl for the first half and then Bob yeah. Ford in the second half, essentially. And it, it, it rugby league all of a sudden had turned into a, a game where it was just a bunch of... Uh, it looked like a bunch of thugs just going out in the field trying to bash each other and a football game resulted it by the end of it. You know, they had points on the board. Um, and they, the good thing is the authorities realised that and they really... I mean, this is a, a result of, and this is a in the rule book anyway. It's a remnant of a lot of stuff that was happening off the field at that time, where players were getting massive suspensions all of a sudden, um, players were getting penalised for foul play and things like that. So, yeah, it's, this is a remnant of that in the rule book for the first time, really. Yeah, we're seeing the first, the first major steps towards professionalism. In behaviour as well. Yeah. Um, Which, and it had almost gone away from, like, the spirit of the... There was a point where it was like you play the game in in the spirit of the game, and then all of a sudden it's like, what the hell is going on out there? It's like the spirit of the game's out the window. They're just trying to hurt each other so that players leave the field and stuff. And, yeah, as you say, this is like a line in the sand that was drawn. It's like you've got to be professionals. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't... French rugby union in the 1920s bad where people were being killed on the ground in fights and stuff. But yeah, they wanted to stop it before it got to that point, obviously. Yeah. Um, the other rule that came in in 81 is that teams are now allowed to have four replacement players, not two. Mm-hmm. It's a good rule. I like that one too. I like, I, there's something to me that is a nice balance about having four on the bench um, for a rugby league game. I think more than that is too many. I think less than that is too few. Yeah, I think four is perfect. Mm. Um, speaking of four being perfect, in 1983, the value of a try was increased from three points to four. And can I just say, how seamless was that? Bravo. <laughs> I'm like but, the uh, Segway king here. Yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, another great rule change. Probably a little bit overdue by then. Um and once again, something that I think is hilarious that Rugby Union looks at and says, no, 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 not four or five. <laughs> like, it just makes no sense. Ours are worth but, more. Yeah. Oh, they're worth more. And um, I think the perfect scoring system for for a rugby sport um, in terms of you want tries and now you've devalued how much a goal is worth in terms of the overall, you know, points that you can get from um, scoring plays. Now the try is the king. Exactly. Um, another rule which was brought in to help minimise the number of scrums in a game, um, if you're caught with the ball on the last tackle, there used to be a scrum. They abolished that and had a handover instead. Yeah. 
And, and, and not, once again, get rid of the scrums. Uh, 1986, the 20-metre restart was given when the ball was caught on the full in the in goal by the defending team. So oh, wow. That's, oh, a, that's a rule that's pretty common that we see every time, but people don't realise it's actually only been around since 86. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. I thought that would have been... I, I always thought that was a bit of a remnant from the very early days. And it's interesting because it's a tiny little rule change, but I really, really like it. It rewards the defending team. Um, it penalises a poor attacking kick. Uh, it's it's one of those rules that just feels so right. I agree. I agree. Speaking of rules that seem right, check out this for another segue. Um, 1987, the head bin was introduced. And this is the first step in towards player health that yeah. we're looking at here. Um, so it was introduced for players suffering minor head injuries. The injured players were allowed to return to the field after 10 minutes of play without affecting the, a team's quota of replacements. Oh, right. Wow. And that's kind of like what... Well, I think now it's if you pass your HIA, you have it, you've got to be off for 15 minutes, I think it is. Um, and that is very similar to what we have today, except back then they didn't have the HIA. They just wanted to make sure you were conscious again. <laughs> yeah. Can you stand? Huh? Yeah. You can respond. That's good enough. I always have this thing as like... Uh, when when a player gets knocked out, and they they, they can't do it these days because of the HIA, but when a player would get knocked out and they wouldn't know who they were, just tell them they're Wally Lewis and they're playing at Lang Park. <laughs> just send them back out there. <laughs> yep. Um, in 1988, the you're allowed to actually have two fresh replacements on the bench instead of having four that had played half a game in lower grades before that match. Okay. So you had to have two that had played before and yep. two that were brand new, fresh, that hadn't played a game all day. I wonder if now we're starting to get towards logistical issues um, where it was just logistically easier to start to look at having just, yeah, I've got my first grade team and that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was that. Maybe it was just an attempt to try and, Liven the game up by bringing on two two live wire players off the bench. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, imagine if you had that ability to do that, and you did it, say in a grand final, where you took your best players off the field and put some bench players on when the crucial moments in the game. Imagine how that'd work out. Yeah, like Steve Jackson in '89. Anyway, <laughs> I knew I'd get you. <laughs> Well, those uh, two defensive forwards that the that Walk Ryan put on and they didn't make the tackle on Steve Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Anyways. Um, <laughs> um, in 1990, in touch judges were introduced for the final series in New South Wales. Oh, they hadn't been there yet. Wow. I thought they were a, a relic from the past as well. No, they were brought in. So these were additional oh. to the... Touch judges on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, initially, that was what they were going to be. I think they ended up becoming the touch judges, then went around and became the in goal ones anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, 1991. Got a lot of text written here. Um, the interchange rule was introduced, which allowed four players, including two fresh reserves, and minimum two had played half a game from preceding 
lower grades games. But it also meant that there was unlimited number of times that you could change with them during the game. Okay, so basically unlimited interchange. Exactly. Now, okay. the main purpose of this rule is to reduce the risk of bloodborne diseases being spread. Yes, so we've got, at this point in society, AIDS is terrifying people. Yep. And they don't really understand completely how it is being transmitted, but they know it can be transmitted via blood. So I guess this is a chance for if you've got a player that's bleeding everywhere, and instead of having like a flat-out blood bin rule, this was an opportunity to just get that player off the, the field, get them sorted out, and then you can send them back out and there's no real penalty to um, to your team. I guess this is another player welfare thing as well. Exactly. And I, I think it's really hard to explain to people, especially younger people at the moment, the, the real fear. I mean, at this point in society, AIDS is starting to come into the public conscience and there's this fear that it's going to be like a new, almost like a plague or something that it, because they really didn't fully understand how it was transmitted either. They knew some of the ways it was transmitted, but they didn't know how it wasn't transmitted. So that's interesting that that came in at this time. Um, And that makes a lot of sense. I I think at this time, um, I think the general consensus was a lot of people thought that AIDS was only between, you know, gay people. Mm. And when they found out that it could actually be spread by um, anybody yeah. via, via, you know, via blood yeah. uh, being contaminated, um, that's when they went, oh, crap, we've got to do something. So they made yeah. this rapid change at the start of the year. There was a lot of, a lot of um, public outcry against it. And so the unlimited number of, of changes was changed. So you could only make a maximum of six during a match. Mm-hmm. And th- that was only a few months later. Mm-hmm. Um, but players would, that were sent to the blood bin would not count as one of those six interchanges that were allowed per game. Yeah. And a, a, look, a good, a good compromise at the end of the day. Um, and and yeah, it was a system that could be abused either because, you know, you had to be bleeding to, to not get that penalty. Although they did have a thing in English Rugby Union where I think it was a player used blood capsules. Yeah. I can't remember his name. And that and they, they caught him. They caught yes. him doing it. I think it was a whole club. Was it Leicester? I, 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 I just can't remember. But, yeah, yeah they caught them doing it. That, there's an, a, another thing that I want to bring up too. They actually used to say – it got to a point where they said, look, we don't think that uh, – HIV or can survive for very long at all outside the body on, uh, say, a jersey. And then they did a study, and it was only about eight years ago, and they realised that it you it could actually be an issue. And that's why now we see players having a – you're not allowed to get blood on your jerseys. They changed that rule there. If you've got a jersey that's got blood everywhere, you can't just strap your head up and play on. You've got to change your jersey. So that's why that rule come in place because yep. they actually did a study about that. But anyway, we're still in the early 90s. Let's go back there. Yeah, well, in 1993, the 10-metre rule was introduced, replacing the old 5-metre rule. 1993, eh? And yeah. another good rule change. It probably as much a response to 
the changing dynamics of, of player athleticism and professionalism that is starting to, even from, say, five years ago um, in the game, players are now starting to change pretty rapidly in terms of athleticism. Exactly. Um, so we also had referees. Referees were given the power to put a player on report, mm-hmm. whereas previously they had to either just be sin bin or sent off. Yep. Yeah, that's a nice one. That's a good one. I guess that, you know what, I feel as though that's as much about just showing the crowd that, yeah, I look, I missed something there, but we're going to look at it at a later date as much as anything. Yes. And lifting in tackles was now penalised to prevent spear tickles. Uh, spear tackles. Spear tickles. <laughs> spear tickles. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> maybe they should introduce spear tickles. That would be interesting. I don't even know what they'd be. I feel like I can't even say anything about this because it just leads down terrible roads. You just can't do that. Spear tickles, yeah. That'll go in the uh, the the podcast description. The podcast, yeah. (laughs) The podcast and spear tickles. All right, come on, let's get back to this contract. Nineteen ninety six. Video referee was introduced. Okay, now interesting. We're in the Super League war now. Okay, we're getting a lot of propaganda from all sides of the media about what the future of the game is going to be and how it's going to change and stuff like this. And television is a giant like cloud that is hanging over the game at the moment. And I, you can see where this was something that was pushed by the media as like, um, you know, the game's on TV. We've got to make sure we don't have mistakes, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden... In comes video referee. Really revolutionary, by the way, by rugby league. Um, a lot of a lot of sports ended up following rugby league's lead from this. Although I think the NFL trialed a similar, well, not a similar one, but they tried video replay a number of years before, but then scrapped it pretty quickly. And then rugby league picked it up here and and really kept up with it. And then we've seen most other sports now have some sort of video referee in place. Yep. Although in rugby union, it's a television match official. Fucking idiots. I think soccer's got the same thing, haven't they? The referee goes over and looks at a tiny monitor. Yeah, video. It's called the VAR, video. It works It works well. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I, heard it, I heard it got shut down during the grand final in the A-League last year or something like that. Yeah, it did. Precisely at the same time that they needed to use it. Yeah, well, you know, it happens. Sometimes... Probably. It just happens. I swear that is going to happen with the bunker one day, where they're going to the the bunker is going to just go offline. <laughs> funny. Um, unlimited interchanges was brought back. Mm-hmm. Um, striking at the ball in the play, the ball was canned. Yeah, now this and... is interesting. I think. Oh, sorry, go on. What's the last one? I said, the last one was at the play the ball. The tackle player was stopped from being able to tap the ball forwards and pick it up again if there was no marker there. I don't know if you remember seeing that one or not. Yeah, I do. Now, there's a couple of things here. So the la- let's start with the last one. Go for it. The last, the last one was controversial because you could, if you were tackled and you didn't have markers in front of you, you could tap, you could just tap the ball and run it. But the problem that you would have is that it was up to the attacking player to determine whether the markers were in front of him. And unless the markers were directly in front of him, you got players that would get... It was starting to become a bit of a grey area. 
And there was so much of an advantage that you got from tapping the ball like that, um, that it, it you started getting players that were tapping the ball. And it's like, hang on, you kind of had markers there, dude. And it just become a little bit messy. I kind of miss it in some ways, but it did clean up to play the ball. The other thing is striking it in the ruck, which was just a common common thing. Like if there was a poor play the ball, the defensive player, the first marker, would strike at the ball and try and rip it back towards the player that was behind him. Um, that was That didn't happen all that often, but when it did, it was a big game-changing move. And... But what it did is it meant that the ruck could get very, very messy. It also slowed the play the ball down because the player would literally have to get up. He'd have to make sure the player wasn't too close to him. He'd have to play the ball correctly, make sure he got it back. But it, it did. It could get pretty messy, especially in pressure situations, games close near the end of the game. You'd get players striking at the ball and it'd become a bit messy. So, yeah. I think initially when that rule was brought in, it was um, it was designed so that what you were trying to do if you were the marker was you were trying to rake the ball back to your teammate. Mm-hmm. But by the 90s, um, I mean, we saw the likes of Benny Elias attempt a lot, where instead of trying to rake it back, he'd try and kick it between the player's feet and make, yeah. the, make the hook on the opposition side knock on. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was one of the best at it. Like, he, he was. was he, in fact, may be the best that I ever saw at it. Um, and whenever I think of that that era, I think of Benny Elias doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was that was pretty much his his marquee thing. No one got near him when it came to that. Mm. Um, nineteen ninety seven. This one sort of surprised us a bit. The forty twenty rules introduced in Australia. Very, very, very early. We both said it would have been about the two thousands when we were. Well, you were doing the research for it. I was listening. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we thought it was the 2000s. And I think the reason is because back then at that point in the game's history, you just didn't – it wasn't something that was even on the radar for a lot of teams thinking about kicking a 40-20. No, it wasn't. Um, the other thing that came in in 97 was um, zero tackle. So, yeah. So when a pl- – when if a th- – the attacking team dropped the ball and the defensive team dropped on top of that ball and a hand was placed on them, that was the zero tackle. It didn't count as their first tackle. Um, That's right. And, yeah, not, not a bad rule change, I didn't think. Um, no, I like, I kind of like six tackles and keeping it at six tackles, but I can understand that rule change. Yeah, so it was essentially the um, the advantage rule. Yeah. But without having to stop the, stop the game and all that, you just went, okay, just... You start after the next one. If you just fall on the ball and get tackled, that doesn't seem fair because you're only getting a, a five-tackle set instead of a six-tackle set. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was trying to, trying to put the onus on the ball carrier to hold the ball better. Yep. Um, and is this, this is also a point where the stripping rule could probably come in around Super League. I think it might have been introduced by Super League where um, you could strip the ball... I feel like it started off you could just strip the ball whenever and then they realised pretty quickly you had to limit when you could rake the ball out. Well, um, I was going to say, that that's coming up in 2001. The defender oh, allowed to strip the ball in a tackle, but mm. only if there was two tacklers in the tackle. You couldn't have any more than two in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was... I think you're right, though. I think it was around the Super League when they started bringing in the the stripping was allowed. And it seemed to sort of almost 
replace the dummy half striking at the ball rule. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is too, and, and there's sometimes you hear rugby union people criticise um, that there's no uh, contest for the ball in rugby league. But what they miss is that because the game is so fast and brutal, that you every every tackle is a contest. Just to hold on to the ball in a tackle is a contest. And I, I really like this year what they've done with the stripping rule in that you can have you could have three plays in a tackle and we've seen two of them drop off immediately when they've got a call from one player that's like, get off, I've got the ball, and then yeah. that one player strips up. I absolutely love that. That is one of my favourite things to see in a game. Um, but yeah, sorry. We, let's go back to the early. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm, I'm with you on that one entirely. I think it's. I think it's been a great change to the rule. Yeah, and it's funny because the NRL said that they were going to look at it. Graham Annesley, I think it was, said he was going to look at it, and because obviously coaches absolutely hate that. But it is one of the most exciting things in the game that you see where a player is running the ball. They're all wrapped up, and then in this. Brilliant in-game, fast motion, tactical thing that happens where it's like, boom, two players drop off, ball stripped, position changes. It's so exciting to me when that happens. Yeah. Um, Another rule change in 2001. Um, These ones are pretty minor, but uh, a defending player jumping to catch the ball from an opponent's kick cannot be tackled midair. Yeah. A player safety one there. Very nice one. I'm glad we have that. Yep, and also in 2001, limited interchanges were brought in. So a maximum of 12 were now allowed during a game. Okay, so with uh, unlimited interchange, it was it had got to a point where it had changed the fabric of the game a little bit too much, and they realised that. And, yeah, to, and what was it, 2001? Yeah. Yeah, because from, in my memory... The world, the rugby league World Cup was basically the last time that was going to be used. And one of the interesting things out of that was that uh, a lot of uh, the Britain rugby league types thought that their players were going to be fitter than the Australian players because the Australian players were playing in under unlimited interchange at that point. And of course, it, it turned out to be the complete opposite of that. But anyway. Um. 2004, uh, an attacking player who gets held up trying to score a try, um, they take the ball back and have a play and continue the set. So if was, they get held up on the third tackle, they just go back 10 metres and have a play the ball and continue playing on. What do you think of this rule? I kind of like it because I think the rule before it was there was a scrum. I, I hate this rule. I hate it <laughs> so badly. I, ju- I just feel as though it goes against what rugby league's about. It just... You know, you try, you're trying to score a try, and then you don't. So everyone stops. You walk backwards with the ball, which makes no sense at all when you consider all of the other rules are about advancing the ball up the field. You walk back to the 10-meter line. You wait for the referee to say he's ready. He waits for his mate to say he's ready. He looks down the line, makes sure everyone's on side, and then you play it again. I don't like it at all. I really, I, really hate it. I find that it's consistent with rule changes in the game where they've been focused for, at this stage, nearly 30 years, actually nearly 40 years, in promoting the idea that scoring tries is the most important thing you can do and mm-hmm. that we don't need scrums in the game anymore. 
It's, so it's consistent with both of those. It's trying to get rid of another way to have a scrum, and it's also trying to allow the attacking team, who are close to scoring, to mm-hmm. have another crack. So I, I don't mind it so much. Yeah, I, see, I, I see your point, though. I see your point. Yeah, so, and it was also brought in because they felt like, and when I say they, I mean the media, ugh, they felt like there was a, a defensive team didn't get rewarded for holding a player up. And my counter to that is, the defensive team just let you go 100 metres and let you cross their line and then you want to reward them by, you know, making the opposition go back 10 metres and play the ball. I don't like it at all. I, I, Any other scenario I would rather see, even if it was like, I don't know, a drop kick from the defensive team. What about just hold... playing, playing the ball on the line? Yeah, yeah, I, I would enjoy that as well. In fact, that's probably the best way to do it. I just, I hate it. It's one of my most hated rules. There's two rules I really hate in the game, and that's one of them. I really do. I feel like it goes against everything that rugby league is about. All right, well, uh, we're not far away from finishing this, and we'll get on to the rules you hate. Mm-hmm. Um, 2008, the maximum number of interchanges reduced from 12 to 10. I like that one, yep. Um, a second tackler was now allowed to strip the ball if the attacker was attempting to place it down for a try. So previously that would have been a penalty. Yeah, and I think that that was kind of a necessary evil rule because it was just too... There was too many grey areas before that. And I think that it's there's no ideal rule in that situation, but I think that's the best of all of the the bad, you know, outcomes. Yeah, because... I think the way it used to work was um, if you stole the ball as a defender from an attacking mm. player who's in the you know, in the try try scoring area there and he's trying to get the ball down, the ball gets stolen off him. I think it used to be awarded a penalty try. Yeah, uh, or yeah, it, it was a penalty try or um, just uh, I don't think I think it, that there were only certain situations it was a penalty try like. Say, for instance... It was either penalty trial or penalty. And so yeah. they made it just legal to... You can defend any old way you like mm. when you're in the owning goal there. Apart from with Billy Slater's feet. Apart <laughs> from, I was going to actually put that in there. No feet okay. from Billy. Yeah. Um, and the other look. thing we started seeing, too, was the players would get over the line and they would either lose possession or literally let go of the ball to get that, that penalty reward. And it yeah. was a cynical move, and, and that rule change stopped that cynical <laughs> move from happening. That's exactly right. Um, the other one was, in the scrum, the ball can no longer be trapped by the lock forward in an attempt to try and catch the opposition offside. Okay, so now we've seen this happen a lot this year. Canberra likes doing this. I, I And so, I mean, they might, they might have changed the rule again. I like seeing teams trap the ball. And I think the reason that they changed this rule was not so much about they didn't like the tactic. I think it was putting too much pressure on referees because at this stage, the scrum gets fed and then you kind of wait a few seconds and then you break from the scrum if you're the defensive side. But if you break from the scrum while the ball's still in, it's a penalty. And they were there was a point there where the coaches wanted referees to tell players when the ball was out and they still do that to this day but referees would see the ball get to the to the lock and sometimes they were yelling it's out 
but it was still in. But they'd have to give a penalty. And so I think this rule change was tried to was trying to take the pressure off the referees. Um, I personally love the tactic of holding the ball in the scrum, and I, I think that it should always be part of the game. Well, something else that was designed to take the pressure off the referees was in 2009 when the two referees were allowed on the field. Mm, and Look I like at the that. segues. I know. This is... You're really good at this. You should start a podcast. <laughs> Just banking them out today. Yeah. This is um, why we're experts, hey? <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, that I, and people that say it's better with one referee are mad. They're stupid. Well, the, the argument they use is that, obviously, it works in England. But the English yeah. game is played much differently here. And I'll tell you this right now. I'm not ashamed to say this. I enjoy watching the way the game is played in England because the ruck is so much faster there. Which means, because of that, you don't need a second referee. The okay. reason why we had two referees come in here is because the ruck was getting so slow. You know, we, this is around the time that we had grappling going on in tackles and mm-hmm. all that sort yep. of stuff, and it was getting yep. slow and bogged down. So we yep. had a second referee coming in to try and clear that muck up and try and get the, the ruck moving a bit more freely. That's yeah. why, largely, we got two referees in a game in Australia, and we need it. Yeah, and the game is also was also getting... I think faster to the point where Definitely. it was too fast for one one person to be keeping an eye on everything. Um, I I personally don't like the way that Super League's played. I think it's a mess, and I, like I always find it completely mad when people say, "Oh, I love watching Super League," like because I watch it and think, "Oh my goodness, look at this bloody sloppy football they're playing!" Like they're just rolling the ball back between their legs and. It just, it's kind of crazy to me. Um, I also think that the reason that they play the balls are quicker is because the English players aren't as effective at tackling. Um, well, so, I mean, that, that could well be true. I just think, yeah. you know I, mean? I don't think we can argue, though, that the, the, the play the ball on the ruck is quicker there than what it is here. Oh, way quicker, way quicker. Yeah. And but the part part of me also thinks because we went through a period of time over here where the play the ball was super quick as well, and yep. I don't think it would it made for better football. I think the better football is when teams do. It's a really fine balance of when you've got to give the defensive team enough time to set. You've got to give the attacking team enough time to set. You've got to make sure that it doesn't turn into just a dummy half running contest. Um, Which and, is what. 2005 was, let's be honest. The, the, yeah. Tigers, the Tigers won that title in 2005 um, based on the fact that they had a very fast mobile side mm-hmm. and the ruck was so damn quick. Yeah. And they just and caught everyone napping. That's pretty much what they did. They were so fast out of dummy half. Yeah, and they had that smaller mobile pack, which, mm. I mean, you think of the teams around that era that won they all had big packs, like every single one of them. Yep. Um, and the Tigers were just like this, they're a real outlier in that sense in the makeup of their side. Um, but yeah, I I think that, I, I really think the referee in this year has been brilliant. And it, been. It, it's a real nice balance that the game has right now. Um, and yeah, two referees I think are brilliant. I when people say, oh, I like the I like the one referee in test matches, they're leaving out the fact that you've got two teams of some of the most elite players that the game actually has uh, playing at their best. You know, you don't get into these test teams by not playing great football uh, or having been have the ability to play great football. So 
they they forget that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing I would say about that. But yeah, two referees. I think it should just be adopted worldwide. Personally, agreed. Um, the other rule that came in 2009 was tackling a kicker while he's in the air was made illegal. Yeah, good one. I think I think also we had around this time the cannonball tackle was outlawed as well. We also had the the chicken wing and the grappler and all those sort of things that were all sort of coming in around this period. Um, yeah, and w- once again, a lot of it was the media that was like. A lot of these things, oh, the chicken, we are, and it's like, come on, cheese. Can we stop with all these stupid notes? And they, then they started to, like, have this, like, arms race of who could come up with the most ridiculous-sounding name for a, well, a tackle fight. I think 2009 was, um, was that the year that Cameron Smith got suspended for a tackle on Sam Thiday and he, meant he missed the grand final? Or was that 2008? Oh, I can't I mean, 2008. And I called it the... Um, the stubby twist top, because he looked like he was trying to screw Sam Sade's head off his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. And, the, yeah, and they, they had that where they started protecting the player's head in the tackle. You're right. Yeah. Um, which is, it's it's interesting because we're, we're seeing this year a lot of uh, crusher tackles. And once again, another named thing. We're seeing a lot of crusher tackles, and we've talked about this a little bit, where it's... There's different dynamics in the game. It's probably not the time to talk about it. We'll talk about it once we're finished with the rules. But, yeah, they're protecting players' heads in attack, well, which is done. good. We're up to um, 2010. And I know that some other people get credit for this, but I'm going to call it the Vossi rule. Mm-hmm. Andrew Voss. Um, a rule change was made to the playing field. Mm. First change to the playing field. Um, where the, the corner posts went from being considered as the actual dead ball line so if the ball touched the quarter post or a player touched it, they were automatically ruled out. Yeah. It was changed so that they were just a decoration or a guide. So if you touched the quarter post, you were still in the field of play. Mm-hmm. So as the rest of your body was, you know. Um, and I'd have to say that has been one of the most phenomenally brilliant changes we've had. How many amazing tries have we seen being scored because players can now touch that corner post and not go mm-hmm. to touch? You see tries yeah. where all there is that's in the field of the play is the hand on the ball and nothing else. Everything else is over the sideline in the air. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic stuff to watch. You can't you can't not enjoy seeing that. That's amazing stuff. I like the old rule. <laughs> I like the old rule. I thought it was and look, you're talking to somebody that only ever wanted to be a winger, right? And I felt like it was a part of your skill set to make sure you kept inside and didn't touch that that corner post. Um, I understand that it, you know, it's made for spectacular tries. Uh, I kind of liked the idea that the corner post was part of the playing field. I thought that that was pretty cool. Um, and I, I didn't see anything wrong with the old rule. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think this has been brilliant. It's, it's. You're wrong, Andrew. For me. You're wrong. For me. No. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's about that consistency thing again because it's it's made scoring tries something that's easier to do. Yeah, it, look, it has. And it's made, I mean, some of the tries we've seen are just... When you see some of these tries that these wingers and centres are scoring and they're like, you think, oh, you know, that's that's out. And then you see the replay and they've done some Cirque du Soleil shit. <laughs> it's fucking incredible. And... It's hard to argue about that, but I'm just one of these people. I didn't see a problem with the old rule. It's, you know, I don't, I, you know, yeah. And 
I mean, I can't argue with you. You are the expert. It's written on my Twitter bio. You, know? <laughs> I, you don't just call yourself an expert. It's in the bio, people. That's right. <laughs> um, 2014. Here's a rule you like. The seven tackle rule was introduced. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. I think it's dumb. I hate it. I, I absolutely hate it. First of all, I don't like rules that are brought in that force tactics out of the game that are, I think, legitimate tactics. So this rule was brought in because they said that teams were basically kicking the ball dead deliberately so that the likes of Billy Slater and Greg Inglis couldn't run the ball back. And I just... I. I when I was watching the game at the time, I'm thinking, hang on a second, are you talking about Billy Slater and Greg Inglis that are running the ball back all over teams anyway? You know, it wasn't like they were dulling them too much. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a legitimate tactic. I thought that it had legitimate consequences when it happened. You know, it's a 20 metres. That's a fifth of the field you give up doing that. That's the thing I get, okay, is the fact that how many times can you do a hit-up and make 20 metres in a game? Mm. You know, so straight away you kick the ball dead. You automatically handing over, you handing over twenty meters straight away. Yeah, that's and a that's, huge advantage. That that's that's as good as a tackle. Easy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so I felt as though there was already a nice balance there. Um, I I don't like when you add an extra tackle to things. I mean, we talked about the zero tackle. I think that that, as you say, it's almost a changeover of possession. So I can sort of let that one slide, but I don't like that any time where you're like, oh, yeah, you get a bonus tackle. Why do you get a bonus tackle? It just makes no sense to me. Um, you know, the the penalty is that you gave up 20 metres of field position straight away. Uh, so I don't like that, that rule. I would like to see it reverted um, so that we can see the likes of Clint Gutherson once again carving up. <laughs> Carving up the Canterbury Cup. I'm sorry, I had to. Uh, um, I was going to think I, of a sub I of a, a segue there. I, I was just, I was just mulling over that thought of of Gutherson carving up. Yeah. Um, in 2016, the number you've got to imagine it because <laughs> <laughs> you've never seen. I, it. I, I tried. I tried. <laughs> I gave. I gave a solid ten seconds there. Yeah, I heard it. I heard it. <laughs> It hurt my ear. <laughs> um, Twenty sixteen, the number of interchanges per game was reduced to eight from ten. Once again, I liked it. It's a kind of a balancing thing, and I think they've the last few times they've changed that. It's been a, at the right time and the right balance. They're looking at changing it back down to six. I don't think any. I wouldn't change it at, at the moment. I think it's fine. I think they've got the balance right now, mm-hmm. um, and. Also, 2016, the bunker is born. Yeah, now, what you and me have talked about this a little bit. They brought it in for consistency, and then, funnily enough, whenever you, they'd go to the bunker, it was always a different referee that was doing the bunker. Yeah. My, my feeling was, and I've said this to you before, it was a cost-cutting measure. They didn't have to send teams of you know video referee staff and that all over the country and to New Zealand. They could just have them all sitting in Sydney. And, I mean, that's fair enough. I think that's if, – if that's the case, I think it's bloody smart because yeah. Yeah. what's the point of moving it all over the place? Might as well just have it in one place. Yeah. Um, yeah, and a lot of people's 
talk about they want the bunker gone, they've got to realise the bunker is the technology. Yeah. And the technology is phenomenal, and we need that in the game. Mm-hmm. What we need to improve on is the way it's used. Yeah, the um, application of it, yeah. That's all we need. And I I think the first step I'd have is I'd have less people being officials in the bunker. I'd have mm-hmm. it at just maybe two or three. Yeah. You know, and, th- and that's it. It's not going to be that huge a workload. So... Yeah. If you have two or three there, you're reducing the risk of inconsistencies because you've got the same few people making the same calls all the time. Yeah, That improves consistency already straight away. Um, I'd also have them... I'd, I'd get them out of the ref's ear. You know, yeah, have them so yeah. they, the great thing about when the video ref came in, and I've said this before, is mm-hmm. they were called on to help out the referee when the referee asked for it. Yeah. And he didn't say to them, I think it's this or that. He says, look at this. Tell me what you think. And if the ref- video referee comes back and says, you know, it's a try, it's no try, I've got no fucking idea, um, yeah. then it'd go back to the referee to make a call on the field. That's yeah. a good system. At the moment, we've got this system. I know some people may argue that it doesn't make much difference, but if you're setting up a, a decision as a try or a no try, it automatically adds a small amount of bias to the decision that's going to be made in the bunker, whether whether they try to do it or not. They're going to go up there, and the decision's either going to be, how can we disprove that call, or how can yeah. we prove that call? And, and it's, that's the wrong way to it, yeah. look at it. And it's not, it, it's not, there's something about the spirit of the game, and we've talk, I've talked about that a couple of times, and I very rarely use them terms. There's something about the spirit of the game where, you send it to back to the administration to try and prove the referee wrong. It yeah. doesn't. It just seems a bit wrong to to be doing that. I also think that, um, and and I think this is something that will happen in sport over time because we're seeing so many sports bring in technology, and it is brilliant, and it does it does help the sports. I do think at some point there's going to be a pushback against that, and the purity of human mistakes will become something that is unique to sport. And so I think that when we apply the video ref and and the the bunker as a whole, I would like to see it reduced to just if a try has been scored. And one of the things we've seen recently, referees use it um, to determine things like who touched the ball last when it went dead. And I can understand why. And you want to get things right. But at the same time, I I do like the purity of the call being made on the field. And so I would like to see the use of the bunker reduced to just did they get the ball down maybe. Um, and I can see where people want to expand it, but I there's something about it I don't like. But overall, I mean, I'm a big fan of the use of the video if we need it. You know, you get the right decision whenever possible, but... Um, yeah, I, I do think that in time across all sports, that purity of human indecision and mistakes will actually be something that is a unique part of sport as technology invades all of our lives more and more. Yeah, good old technology. I know. We can't sit there and bitch about it because, you know, it's letting us do this. Yeah, great, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> all right, so we're up to the point now where we're going to look at a... Um, have a quick chat, I guess, about what rule you hate that you probably haven't discussed yet. Yeah, I mean, I think I've I've pointed out the main ones. I 
that I really don't like. I don't like the seven tackles when you kick the ball dead. Um, I don't like when you you go back to the 10-metre mark when you've been held up in goal. I don't like that one. I still think there's a few issues with um, how the, the uh, HIA is used. I think sometimes we're seeing it still not applied properly by teams. There's every so often, and look, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a enthusiastic amateur gynecologist. I think that there's still moments when it's being misused by teams in both directions, whether they want to keep a player on the field or whether they want to get a player off who they can get a, a free interchange out of. Um, but they're the main ones. There's no other real rules that jump out at me at this point that I sort of think are bad rules that I'd like to see changed. How about you? Are there some that jump the out only, The only thing I'd like to see changed is, and this is to benefit the attacking or the team with the ball, and that is when a penalty is awarded to a team, I say just let them take the tap whenever the damn well they please. Who yes. cares where they're where their teammates are on the field, who gives a shit? Let them take the tap and just let them go. It doesn't matter where the ref is. It doesn't matter if they take it on the exact spot where the infringement took place, so long as they're on that metre line. you know, yeah, Anywhere that, on that 10-metre line, line across the field, yeah. tap and go. I don't care what goes on. You know, it's, It is not an advantage to the team who gets the penalty yeah. if, if it's a tap, for example, mm-hmm. and the defensive team is allowed to get themselves set. Yeah, yeah, you know, I agree. It, it, it's the opposite. In this, yeah, <laughs> and we've got too much in this game. We're, we're sweating now. Teams intentionally give away penalties. Mm-hmm. So punish them for it so they stop doing it and play the game in a bit more spirit. Um, the HI one, yeah, there's teams that abuse that as well. And I think there's a rule that should be brought in is if you take a player off because um, under the HIA, no matter what, they have to miss the next week's game. Or the, the very next game, you, they can't come back on and put it under the heading of "We're doing it for the players' welfare." Yeah, yeah, and, and that will stop teams, you know, rotting that system. Yeah, because the, I feel as though, and it doesn't happen often, but there's just times where you see, and we saw it in a, a game with the um, Storm on the weekend. There were two, two Storm players that had a head clash, and one of the players didn't go off. One of the players did go off and was filthy about it. Um, but the other player stayed on the field, and I was surprised by that. Now, the thing, I and I've always said this about these things, sometimes you can have your balance knocked off for a moment, but you're not concussed. Concussion's a bit funny like that. Sometimes you can look at a player get knocked on their backside, and they're not actually being knocked over from a concussing hit. It's actually like they're their leg has just collapsed underneath them or they've had their legs taken out from underneath them and it looks like a head clash or a head knock, but it's not. It's something completely different. Sometimes you see a player lying on the ground and you think, oh, man, he's been completely knocked out and they're actually, like, holding their ribs, you know? Yeah. So it's it's hard to judge. And I would always... I would never question what is happening on the field, but I just feel as... I do have concerns about it. Um and I, I, I think that where we're at is probably a happy medium between everything. And the players are really getting looked after. But 
I think any time you can look after players a little bit more, but also make sure that teams aren't abusing the system, it's you've always got to keep an eye on that. Exactly. Um, as for the quick tap, I would always want all of the plays to be between, behind the tap being made. So I would never want a tap to be made and there but still be an attacking player in front of the, the player tapping the ball. But outside of that, I agree 100%. As long as you're on the plane, the same plane as where the the infringement occurred, tap the ball and run. Even if they said you've got to be within five metres of where the penalty occurred, um, just tap it and run. I don't think there should be anything... How's about this for a tweak then, okay? Yeah. The players are allowed to be in front of the the player playing the ball, but they can't be involved in any play. And they have to make sure that they're onside by the time the play is bought at the first tackle. Yeah. So, you know, if they're wandering back, and you know, something's happened, okay, and they're 20 metres upfield. Yeah. So long as they don't get involved in the play, they don't infringe in the defensive line, they yeah. don't touch the ball or touch anyone, and they're onside by the time that first tackle's made, all's good. Otherwise, a penalty for being offside, as would normally be the case. So they've still got to rush to get back onside. They can't just stand up there and have a breather. Look, I would tweak that once again. You have to have both your arms in the air, so it's clear that. Oh you're gonna... well, well, yes. Because I and it's it's funny because I remember when we'd play at high school at lunchtime, that was something we would all do if we were offside. Like if you're offside or, or whatever, you just put your arms in the air, and it was just a universal sign that like I'm out of the play, and I can't. Re- I'm not going to receive the ball. Um, if and sometimes you still see it in the NRL, and I think that it should be brought in as a rule that. Like, if you've got your arms in the air and you're offside, it, you cease being part of the play. <laughs> you become invisible. Almost. I mean, I can see if you still have it as part of the play when you're in a trial line situation and a player runs... You know, you can't have players run through with their, their hands in the air. <laughs> that, well, that, was, that would be fucking hilarious. Uh, like, we can't looking, have... like, looking like ballerinas running around with their hands yeah. in the air above their head. Worshiping like Hare Krishnas or something, <laughs> like so we can't have that down there. But I think in certain situations where you know if you run around the back of a player and he's got his hands in the air, it's pretty clear he's not part of the play. I don't think that I really do think that that is not too much of a problem. Um, so yeah, if he, <laughs> I find the hands in the air thing to be absolute nonsense. Do you really <laughs> see? Yeah, I, think, I, I had a go on Twitter the other day, Kevin Proctor, because yeah. he was standing. Right next to the, the hooker yeah. and the play the ball. And he was making no effort to move. He just thought, I'm just going to stand here, put my hands in the air. And he got penalised. And I said, putting your hands in there doesn't make you invisible. Next time, get your legs moving. Get your ass out of the ruck, you idiot. Yeah, th- you know what? When you said that, and I retweeted that, because I thought it was hilarious. And really, it was, like, so true, right? <laughs> but I do think, like, put your hands in the air, man. Like, if if you know that you're, you're doing half, or your, hook, your halfback's got the ball and he's going to run around you and you're like, this fucker's going to run around me, got to put my hands in the air, you know? I'd, and, I'd rather see, yeah. actually, a version of that where they put their hands behind their back the same way James Graham does when he goes up to talk to the referee. <laughs> what about this? They drop to the ground. Oh, they that's have, a good one. They have to lay down... <laughs> <laughs> they have Drop to, to the lay down. Do push up. Yeah, or they just have to lay, lay on the ground. How about this, right? <laughs> like they get planking. arrested. They put their hands behind their back and they lay <laughs> on the ground until the ball gets up to them. 
and then I have to get up. <laughs> that that's that's an agreement I can work with. Yeah, that, I someone, think and then when they're on the ground, they have to be treated as though they are part of the turf. Yes. If you if you trip over them, then you're an idiot because they're grass. You yep. shouldn't be tripping over grass. True. Mind you, they're not allowed to move their arms and their legs. They have to plank. Yeah, but although, yeah. Oh, can I add another tweet? You're down on the ground, right? you got your hands behind your back, right? You have to lift your head up, right? And you have to lift your legs up towards your hands that are behind your back. <laughs> um, almost being ready to be hogtied. This, this is starting to get a little bit in the kinky area. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got a chub when I'm explaining this, but, yeah... I think that's. <laughs> I think we've just solved eighty percent of the problems rugby league has. There you go, right that. there. Yeah, and is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I, I think that's a perfect way to say, you know, what well, we've nailed this. Yeah, yeah. How can you how can you improve on that? Yeah, all you'd need would be a ball gag, really, <laughs> <laughs> and a gimp. Yeah, a gimp mask. Oh, jeez. Every team has to nominate a former player to be a gimp. That's, oh, it. that's, wow. a, that's, a, that's a discussion for another episode. That, that one, is that a whole for. podcast. Oh. <laughs> wow. I just would not want to be a manly player when they bring out the whole ball of gimp, let me tell you. <laughs> yes, that could be very entertaining. Yeah. All right, tell you what, we've, um, we've had quite a lengthy one here, so we might just wrap this one up and say... Um, Quickly, you can check us out on YouTube, subscribe, like all the videos there, um, go into iTunes, give us a five-star rating on there, you know, give us a mention on there. We're going to do an episode soon where we'll give everyone a shout-out for their comments and stuff they've made, so stay tuned for that. Um, we are now on Twitter, at Pod. I think that's correct, isn't it? Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on everything else where you listen to us, obviously, because that's, that's where you listen to us now. Um, and we've got some some big plans come up over the origin period. We'll keep you yeah. updated on that in episodes pa- and Patreon. My my good friend is a is a stat, rugby league statistician, right? He's a rugby league historian, rugby league super guru, which is better than just a normal guru. And he's an author, and he has a Patreon page. It's what is the Patreon page called? Oh, is this my one? I thought it was someone else. Uh, <laughs> www.patreon.com slash Andrew... Uh, sorry, RL, RL Projects. So just Andrew. RL Project after... Yeah, RL Project. Yeah, after yeah, look, get on it, okay? We, we've got to give Andrew... You can give him anything from a dollar to a million dollars. Just go on there, have a look at it. Every little bit counts. Every little bit counts towards not only Rugby League Project expanding but this podcast expanding and you know, the work that Andrew does is second to none and he does something for the whole rugby league community. And I would love for everybody to get on and, and really support him in everything he does because it, it is all brilliant and I, I love everything he does. So please, please, please go there, check it out and just contribute whatever you can afford. That would be fantastic. Bloody oath. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Should we talk about what we're going to do on Wednesday? If you want. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we've okay, so we're going to be <laughs> on Periscope 
on the hour leading up to Origin number one on Wednesday night. So we'll jump on at about seven o'clock. If you're on Twitter, you'll see both of us will retweet it. It will be live through Twitter. You can just click on the thing and watch it straight through Twitter. You can also, if you've got Periscope, um, you can join us there. You can follow us through Periscope. You can even, um, if you've got Periscope, you can get involved in the chat that's on there. Uh, and it's all going to be live, and we'll go right up until kickoff. Um, and we're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk a little bit about the game, but I'm going to drink a few beers while we're doing it. Uh, and it's just going to be a bit of fun, and it'll be something so you don't have to watch Channel 9, you know, you know, talk about the same shit they talk about. Every well, it'll either, be, it'll either be the pre-show or it'll be a current affair doing a hatchet job on someone in rugby league to try and capitalise on the uh, captive audience they've got at the moment. Yeah, some bloody... Luke first... O'Donnell will be back in the news again for some story about they already did 13 years ago. Yeah, I like that one. Talk about some first grader that played three games in the 80s and how he's a rotten tradie, you know? It he... might actually... It might be Martin Kennedy. I saw he's in the news at the moment for trying to smuggle um, exotic animals. Oh, that's right. What was it that he was smuggling? It was... Was it parakeets or something? Or... I have no idea. Or... Lizards. I just every time I see an article that says former NRL star, I go, Ugh, eyes glaze yeah. over. Who's this? Yeah, I know. It's it's always like it's very rarely somebody that you even know. Yeah, so, star. Yeah, but uh, I'm a former NRL star. It's like some people call themselves experts, and it's like you're not an expert, please. Um, feed you know, feed 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 expert is the best. Ah. Oh. Feared rugby league expert, it's like, dude, no one fucking is worried about you, bro. Okay, no one's scared. Yeah, no one's scared. You're not, you know, go up to Jason Tamalolo and say, "Do you guys do? Are you more worrying you now?" Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it's block everyone who disagrees with you. Exactly. Um, <laughs> friends, going by the way, but anyway, uh, yeah. So we're doing Periscope, the owl leading into Origin One. You'll find us on Twitter. You'll find us on Periscope. Uh, watch us. Get involved. We'll give shout-outs. If you message us through the Periscope app, we'll give shout-outs to you. If you message us through Twitter, I'll keep an eye on the Twitter. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, and it'll just be a nice, different little lead-in to Origin 1. So uh, get involved, and, yeah, we're really looking forward to doing it. It's going to be quite a contrast because you'll be sitting there slowly getting drunk while I'll be sitting over here trying to deal with a minor. Because my daughter will be um, loitering around. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be so interesting. You'll yeah. be like the, the the drunk uncle trying not to be rude. Yeah, well, <laughs> you've got to you've got to be the designated driver in all this because, yeah. I like, I, I'm I'm only going to start drinking when we start. It's only going to be beer, okay? So because if it was anything harder than that, I'd be gone by the time Origin starts. Um, but, yeah, so you're the designated driver. So if at some point you've got to just dump me out of the product, <laughs> please do it. Just push you out of the moving car. Yeah, just don't ru- don't let me ruin what we've begun. <laughs> well, well, we'll make sure we don't mention Pony. No. If anybody was listening to our test broadcast last night, uh, we, got, we actually did it and we got to the end of it, and then we realised that it had saved everything we'd been talking about, and we were like, oh, how do we re- how do we delete that? It was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was mostly us just swearing and going, how does this work? Yeah. It was um, that for an hour and a half. 
it seemed to be interesting to a handful of people, so, you know. Yeah. Fine. We'll, we'll try and be more entertaining this time around. <laughs> yeah, we'll be we'll be prepared this time around because we've well, got. I'll just a... bring a ton of stats. Yeah, I got it's one like... stat. I got one stat for Origin. Mm-hmm. Mitch Moses has never played a game of it. Oh wow, that's surprising because he stood down from Origin this year because he wants to concentrate yeah. on leading the Parramatta Eels to like tenth place on the ladder. So he's uh... trying to trying to cut down on his workload. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, he's trying to get that $1.2 million contract out of the Broncos. Wow. He'll use them as leverage. Yeah. I wouldn't be wrong about that. that Parramatta wouldn't fall for leverage, would they? Parramatta will just offer him what they think he's worth, surely. Well, they get him before the leverage happens. Yeah, they're like, listen, we think He's a a pre-leverage contract offer. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to have more money in it? We'll put more money. In. We're not afraid to put more money in there. We'll give you more. We've got heaps more where that come from. Do you want more years? We'll give you more years. Oh, jeez. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> it is. It is. Poor Parramatta fans. I prefer the way Penrith does it, where we just sign players that we know will be way over the cap in three years' time, and then we just tap them on the shoulder like six months later and say, "Listen." We know you just signed a long-term deal, but you're going to have to go and play for Leeds now. So the the Tigers had a more aggressive version of that, where they signed them to a three or four year deal, mm. and then three or four months later they'd arsehole them and say, "Go somewhere else now. We'll pay you out at another club." Yeah, I always think there that, a, that's... there was a small period there where we actually funded half of Cronulla's salary cap for two years. <laughs> that's always the best. Like they say, "Oh yeah, we got rid of this player and stuff." It's like, no, you're still paying. Like it's it's the worst position that you could be in is paying somebody to play somewhere else. Yeah, paying somebody remember, to play against you. Remember when they were paying like six hundred grand for Robbie Farrow to play for Souths? Uh, and they were actually paying him to play for North Sydney. Yes, they were. Oh, man. I love the NRL sometimes. Good old good old potato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Um, I hope you enjoyed this extra long episode. And we will catch you next week.